Welcome to ISA's Arbor Views podcast, a series bringing you conversations with researchers and tree care experts about current issues in arboriculture. I'm Philip Van Wassner, your host on this episode of Arbor Views. I'm joined now by Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott. She is Washington State University's Extension Urban Horticulturalist and Associate Professor in the Department of Horticulture. She's also an ISA certified arborist and an author of three books. Today we're going to talk about native species planting mandates and their implications in uh, urban settings these days. So hello Linda. Hi, nice to be here. Welcome to Toronto and thank you for joining us for the Arbor Views. Glad to help. So we're going to start, I guess you're giving a talk at the conference about uh, biodiversity and native species and so I wanted to ask you what, what different types of native species planting ma mandates are currently out there uh, that people are working with? Well, I wasn't really aware of these until I ran into something that happened in Seattle, which is, which is where I live. And uh, they're, they're floating a possible mandate out there that would say that 75% of all new development that went in, this is not private residences, but commercial development, would have to be filled with native species, which struck me as just being a completely arbitrary number without any real explanation. Does that mean 75% of the numbers, 75% cover, it was very vague, and so I got interested in the mandates and started looking around to seeing who else had them. And you'll find mandates um, in other parts of the country, um, in the U.S. anyway, where um, if you live in a particular neighborhood, that they can even mandate what plants that you plant in uh, the public areas, the parkways and things, that they must be natives. So I got interested in seeing what the science is behind that because I wasn't aware of any science that said that, that native species were necessarily better than introduced plants. Interesting. So uh, you've done a bit of research into the existence of them. Why do you think they're there? Why are, why are people putting them in place? Well, you can kind of understand why. I mean, um, we've lost a lot of native species. Um, throughout westward expansion, I guess. But it's mostly through development. You know, we develop and fill wetlands and everything else. Of course, you're going to wipe out species that live in those areas. So um, I think it's part of the desire to go back to the way things used to be to replace the vegetation that used to be there, which is admirable. Um, the problem is, is that when you look at urban areas and try to make them into uh, wild natural areas, it sometimes doesn't work. Well, the, the trees used to be part of an ecosystem, which exactly. is no longer present when exactly. you just plant it back. So what do you think are um, some of the ecological benefits that we can get from native species and then also alternately what might we get from non-native species? It's really interesting. It's a two -part um, I went question. through I went through a whole bunch of papers. Um, I, I kind of do these meta-analyses um, where I look at a lot of different um, published peer-reviewed papers to see what's what they have in common. And it turns out that um, introduced species, and I'm not kind of invasives here, but introduced species are very similar in almost every respect to native species in what their ecological benefits are. So they may do a variety of things. They may um, they might provide a variety of food and nesting habitat. They may help um, moderate temperature. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things um, that are good in terms of um, ecological system function that, that plants will do. But there isn't a huge difference between whether it's introduced or whether it's native. The one thing that, that native plants do give that introduced species cannot is a sense of place. So if, if you are doing a restoration, for instance, um, in, in ecological restoration, of course, you have to use natives by definition. But if you're trying to make something look like um, a landscape might have looked 100 or 200 years ago, of course, you have to use natives. You can't use introduced. But as you point out, urban spots are not native landscapes and they're so different in terms of their soils, 
um, air pollution, temperature, drought, all these conditions. Um, if you're looking at areas, for instance, where I'm from in Seattle, um, unless you want to live in a dark uh, coniferous forest, you're not living in a native landscape. And a lot of plants that live there are shade tolerant, sun intolerant, don't like drought. Um, so if you're stuck planting those, uh, <laughs> you don't have very much to choose from that's going to do well. Right. So, so having some diversity gives you uh, landscape diversity, but I guess also a genetic diversity into the landscape, maybe more than what was there before. Absolutely. Um, and there, you know, of course, there's going to be some objection to that, too. Um, the interesting thing about doing this research is that it became very clear very quickly that um, the whole designation of native versus introduced is it's a, it's a value-based decision. It's not based on science. Everyone right. has their argument about when does something count as being native, what year, you know, when do you start counting backwards from. So it, it's, it's difficult when you're looking at something that's a, that's a value-based decision and try, try to make it scientific, so you can't. Um, but if you can take that away from it and say, you know, what are the scientific benefits, um, you can get some valuable information from that. And what I thought was really interesting, um, again, was that some of the introduced species that, that we have, that we've had for a long time, they're well-behaved, that haven't become invasive, um, do so much uh, for the landscape to replace species that don't grow natively anymore. So that's interesting because it sort of leads into the next question that I had, which is, um, you know, I, my perception is often that there's a conflict between those who say all native and those who aren't on board with that. So maybe from your research, did you find ways that we can actually look at it, how, how the two complement each other? I think you spoke to it a little bit just now. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to use some examples from my neck of the woods just sure. because I run into that all the time. And um, there's, a, there's a lovely tree that grows there. It's um, Arbutus menziesii. It's I know it well. Mudrum. It's beautiful, uh, peeling red bark. It's got um, glossy evergreen leaves. It's got um, huge masses of white flowers that turn into huge masses of red berries. It's a nice um, landscape plant for a variety of reasons. It does not like an urban environment. It likes excessively well-drained soils. It doesn't like fertilizer. It doesn't like water. It doesn't like compaction. You've just negated every single landscape you can think of. It likes to of. hang off cliffs. It loves to hang off cliffs. And when you find them in the landscape where it's been managed, and I use that with air quotes, um, they often get opportunistic diseases moving in because the soil's compacted, it's too wet, it's too fertile, and they don't like it. So they don't, they're not a good choice to plant. Um, so what you do is you look for some relatives. Um, there's um, Arbutus unido. There's a, a few other Arbutus species that aren't exactly the same, but they provide a lot of the same benefit. They might provide the, the flower, they might provide the fruit, it might provide the color. Um, there's a lot of things. So when you have a, a species that doesn't do well in an urban environment, there's so many choices to look at, um, you know, globally that can take its place and not be an invasive problem. And I think you're really hitting on that uh, that that key word, which is invasiveness. And I've seen we we benefit in Toronto here from um, the cemetery system, and one of my colleagues has been managing that that collection for quite a long time, and has been adding species. And it's really wonderful to go through the collection and look at these species that just like you mentioned, they grow very well elsewhere in the world in similar climatic conditions. And you introduce them and they're wonderful. And you know, that, that collection proves that that diversity of species can survive here. So it, it does increase our palate. And I think what I see increasingly is our native species aren't tolerating our urban environments. And if we push too much to only have them, we're going to be 
lacking urban forests. So that's right, and as and it's a really good point you mentioned the the cemetery system is the same thing you see in uh, community gardens and botanical gardens in uh, private reserves where they've they've brought in um, non-natives as part of you know just a palette and they've done very well and they end up supporting a lot of wildlife that used to depend on native species and when you don't have a native species as with the madrones as I mentioned before um, birds that you get ber red berries need something else to eat so if you are sticking with native species only you're not going to be supporting the wildlife and that's part of the ecological diversity is not just the plants it's everything that supports and lives um, within the plant system so that's another really important reason if you value birds if you value you know the mammals the reptiles the insects and there's been a lot of work done on this um, that you have to have a very diverse ecological system to support all those things absolutely so you mentioned again you've done these meta-analysis looking at many different studies so from that you know, what would you think are uh, some of the perceptions that people have about these native species mandates and, and you know, maybe elucidate some of the ones that are mostly true and some of the things that are, are maybe false? I think you, you've touched on some of that already. Yeah. But well, the one that, um, the, the kicker, and this is the one that, that I heard when I first moved back. I'm from Washington State originally and I've been gone for a few decades and moved back. And the native plant um, movement had, had really taken off then and what I heard constantly was that native species are always the best choice because they cost less money because you don't have to irrigate them as much you don't have to fertilize them they're adapted to the climate they're adapted to the pests all these things which again it would be true if they were in an intact system but in an urban area it's often not true so that is is one of the misperceptions um, is that natives are always the best choice and clearly they're not always the best choice the second one is that they um, will provide the benefits that, that other animals need because the animals and the plants have evolved together. If you don't have the native plants there, then the animals are somehow just going to starve to death. Well, nature's not static and everything evolves, so things, you know, it's, it's obviously clear from the way that invasive plants have spread, oftentimes by birds, because right. our native birds adapt, they learn to eat things, um, and they spread them. So yep. they spend very, very quickly thanks to animals because animals aren't going to just wait around for the native plants to come back. They're going to eat what they can eat. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the ecological functions. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, in terms of um, nesting in the habitat, plus um, you'll see all kinds of claims in terms of reduces soil erosion, uh, improves water quality. I mean, all these things are true, but it's not just native plants that do it. It's any plant will do that. And even invasives can sometimes fill that role. This is where it gets tricky in terms of management because, but, um, again, in my part of the world, uh, we have Himalayan blackberry. Mm -hmm. Delicious. <laughs> the birds love them too. Um, if you wiped out all the Himalayan blackberry, you would probably end up wiping out some groups of animals that have come to depend on them. In fact, there was a, a neat picture in our um, newspaper a few months ago. They're finally starting to see the western bumblebee again. And they took a picture of it, and it was on the flower of a Himalayan blackberry. So hmm. the insects need the pollen, the birds need the fruit. And if you take all those things away without replacing it with something else, then you're going to have problems in terms of diversity as well. Right. So um, you just mentioned diversity. What? Maybe you can just, for the listeners, explain a little bit why is biodiversity in the ecosystem important in, in general and in, in an urban situation? Well, in general, it's important just because, well, this is, again, probably a value judgment more than anything else, is that um, we want to maintain um, populations of animals and plants um, so that they don't become extinct. Um, and 
could be a value judgment, I suppose it probably is, rather than a scientific one, although it would be a huge loss if you, you know, lost, lost all these plants and animals. I think so scientifically we could yeah. say as well. <laughs> in, in terms of what it does in an urban environment, um, a lot of it, I think a lot of it is well-being. Um, we can break it down to scientific bits and pieces, but when, if you have an urban environment and you want people to live there and enjoy it, it's got to be something that compels them. And there's been many, many studies. I didn't look at these studies so much on the social sciences, but they've, they've uh, measured um, neighborhood well-being in a yeah. variety of ways that if you have bird song, if you have insects, butterflies, you know, things that, that appeal to you visually or by sound or by smell, you're going to have a better sense of well-being and that makes for a healthier city for a lot of different reasons. Absolutely, and similar classic research by Rachel Kaplan, I think, mm -hmm. looking at just people looking out from a hospital bed on green versus a parking lot, they recover faster, etc. So, Absolutely. Um, and I think also, you know, one of the things that I see is, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability, mm -hmm. and the more um, biodiversity we have, the more genetic diversity we have, the better chance we have against some of these increasing stresses. So. Um, one of our mantras in arboriculture, I would say, is the right species for the right place. So how, how might that actually, um, how can you see that from an ecosystem perspective being a benefit? Um, and how would that translate that way into that sort of biodiversity discussion? Yeah, so if you were looking at um, bringing in some well-behaved introductions, and so again, we're leaving invasives out of, out of the picture, I think there's some very specific things you can do in terms of selection and management. Um, there's a, several very nice tools now for predicting invasiveness. Um, Sarah Reichert did one back in the, in the 90s, uh, it's a dichotomous key where you look at family relationships to figure out whether or not a particular tree is going to become invasive. Um, fortunately for us, um, most invasive, invasive plants that are nuisances are not trees. Um, there are some you know, well-known um, uh, bad players out there, but most of them are not. Right. So there's a huge palette to choose from. There's more and more research on these uh, trees as time goes on. Um, and uh, really, I mean, it's almost like what I tell gardeners if they're trying to figure out what to put in their, in their garden. Wander around your neighborhood, your city, see what grows well. See what attracts birds, see what attracts butterflies. You know, see what, what, what brings in more um, different species of different, uh, different kinds of uh, animals and use those. Um, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, having, a, having a healthier um, genetic diversity, you also have a healthier um, uh, self-regulation, for lack of a better term. You, you don't have as much management if you have a biodiverse um, environment. You're not going to use as many pesticides because if you have um, a biodiversity of insects, you're going to have a lot of um, beneficial ones. They're not just for pollinating, but for controlling pest insects and for controlling some other types of problems. So the, the more you can make a, a intact system, it doesn't have to be a natural system, but an intact functioning ecological system, you really do reduce management over the long term. You don't have as many replacements, you don't have as much chemical use, and you again have that, that sense of well-being you get anytime you have a, a, a diverse, healthy living system. And just out of interest, um, looking at all those different studies ahead, to what extent did um climate change come into the discussion and do, do you have a sense of how that might play into all of this discussion? It did in a lot of the discussions and conclusions that people had because of course in the papers themselves they're doing very careful measurements and it's all current right. but a lot of times what people ended up saying at the end was with, with increased climate change um, um, it's, it's faster than a lot of 
plants have experienced. And generally, when the climate has changed, it's been fairly slow, and, and populations of plants um, obviously don't pick up and move, but their populations shift, and they go north or south, depending on what's happening with temperature. If it happens so quickly that they can't shift fast enough, um, we're going to be left with even fewer plants to choose from if we're stuck with the natives-only palette. So it makes a lot of sense to um, protect structural diversity by having non-natives in there to, to provide the benefits that plants you know, that are native may not be able to, at least for some time. Um, what I thought was the most interesting about nearly every study I looked at was the importance of vertical structural diversity. Mm. It's so important to not just have a park and trees. And you see a lot of pictures of parks, and they're very aesthetically compelling because there's a symmetry and a neatness about it. But but the, the, the lawn tree thing is one of the least um, biodiverse environments you can have. And having the, the ground covers and the shrubs and the, and the subcanopy trees and the larger trees is what's really important for, for managing um, healthy populations of insects, birds, mammals, and reptiles. I like to say we suffer from a Victorian hangover for grass. Um, so I guess lastly, would with this discussion, what do you see the role of arborists playing in, in making this better or worse uh, as we go forward? Well, um, there's, as I said, there's some very easy things you can do in terms of selecting plants. Um, in terms of managing um, the, the structural diversity, especially on a vertical um, level, is important. And actually, I've got a, a whole list of neat little management tricks. But I think that more importantly, arborists need to have a, a, a larger voice at the table um, beyond arboriculture. What they need to be doing is working with urban planners and things and saying, you know, these, these native species mandates are not science-based and they're not tied to sustainability. If you really want to do this, you have to look at it from an ecosystem standpoint. It may not be a natural ecosystem, natural for the area. It might involve plants from other parts of the world, but you can have it uh, functioning, um, self-sufficient with very few inputs, and that's what arborists need to start bringing back to um, their various audiences. Excellent. Well, I, I, it's been a really interesting discussion, I find, in my work that that there's, it's a sort of a swinging pendulum with the, with the native plants. And, and when it's swinging in the way of the native plants, it's very hard to, to say no to that without being seen as taking the wrong side of the discussion. So you've really sort of widened that discussion for us today, and we thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.